So Mark records what you just witnessed on video on, in Mark chapter 11, the triumphant entry into Jerusalem. Well, I don't know about you, but I've had the privilege of actually witnessing the arrival of a couple of higher ups. I'll call them that. How's that? Many, many years ago, a friend of mine took me to uh, Maple Leaf Gardens, and I had the privilege of uh, seeing and hearing Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip address us and enter into that stadium. Never forget it, you could have dropped a pin. We were all fixated <laughs> on watching her make her way through the crowd up to the stage. And then a few years later, Les and I lived in a little apartment uh, near Maple Leaf Gardens, downtown Toronto. And I was sitting on my balcony, looking out, and I could just see a little bit of what's called uh, Church Street. And lo and behold, if the Pulpmobile doesn't go by, with John Paul in it, uh, I thought, why, look at that little thing. Got to get one of those. But no, I, I didn't say that. But uh, it was quite a thing. There he was, going by, waving in all the crowds, but... All this to say that I do remember, but both of these events had all kinds of pomp and ceremony, pomp and ceremony, and, and there were scores of people, as you can imagine, present to witness what was going on. And uh, these were considered to be pretty special events, I guess, in the city of Toronto that were well-planned and uh, well-celebrated. And here we are watching the Lord Jesus enter into Jerusalem, Mark chapter 11, for the final time, and Mark marks this moment because it's very significant in the ministry of Christ. Up until this point, he had avoided Jerusalem because of the hostility against Christ. You remember that the religious elite were after him, and they were seeking to kill him, plotting against him, and so he had to avoid uh, being in Jerusalem for a time. But now here he is, determined, heading straight into the city to finish his divinely ordained task. It's interesting that all four Gospels cover this event. They all speak to it. And uh, especially Mark, um, if you look at the way Mark is constructed, the uh, first 10 chapters cover 33 years of Christ's life. When you get to chapters 11 to 16 of Mark, it focuses primarily upon the final week of Christ's life, his death, and then his resurrection. And so Mark is setting the stage for us for this entrance of Christ into, the, into Jerusalem. And as he does so, I want you to notice that right away what he does is he's giving to us an account of how decisive Christ's control was over these events. And we see this right away in the first seven verses of Mark chapter 11. And uh, that, that uh, Christ is fulfilling exactly what the Godhead had planned in regards to, his, to our redemption. And here we have Mark indicating to us the progression of Christ that is very decisive into Jerusalem. You see this back in Mark chapter 10 and 32, where Mark illustrates that Jesus and his disciples are on their way into Jerusalem, Jesus leading them there. And then when you get to chapter 11, 
Mark indicates once again that now again they are, are approaching Jerusalem. They're closer than they were back in chapter 10. And when you finally get to verse 11 of Mark 11, Mark simply says, Jesus entered Jerusalem. And so you can see that Jesus knew full well what was ahead of him. He knew full well that he was about to die on Calvary. And yet he was decisive in his actions. He led his disciples there, knowing what was coming next, knowing that he was there to fulfill the divine plan of God for our redemption. Mark, I think, even illustrates how Jesus was in control, even in indicating the location that he approached Jerusalem from. And you'll notice that we're told what that is in verse 11, that he approached Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. And again, we're listening to Mark give us some details as to where he was exactly as he came into the city. And I would suggest to you that this is kind of unusual for Mark. Mark is a very fast-moving gospel. He doesn't stick around to smell the roses very often. Uh, He is... He is helping you understand the progression of Christ quickly. But here he seems to stop. And he does smell the roses by giving you some details as to where Christ and his disciples exactly were. They were in Bethpage and Bethany. And if you look at where they were, that means they're traveling east. And they would come around. They're about two miles at this point from Jerusalem. Uh, They're probably on the right slope of the Mount of Olives, and as they would round that, on the south side, they would see this. They would all of a sudden see the city of Jerusalem before them. And here Christ is standing on the Mount of Olives. Uh, He's looking across the Kindred Valley. He's probably about 300 feet above the city, and you can see the original uh, wall of the city, And as you work your way down that, you'll notice the gate. Oh, look, there's even a pointer. Well, look at that. I didn't know we had a pointer. That's fantastic. And I I did that without my hands. That's even more amazing. My word. And so there's, there's the golden gate, or the eastern gate, probably the gate that Jesus entered this day in Mark 11 into the city. And it's suggested because it's the closest gate to the temple grounds where he's headed. And so that's probably the gate that Jesus enters from the Mount of Olives. Now, (coughs) excuse me, I would suggest to you that the Mount of Olives is deliberately chosen uh, chosen by Christ. I think it does have special significance in the scriptures. And uh, in fact, in this day, it was considered to be a very sacred place, a place of prayer and a place of hope. And if you work your way through the Old Testament, we don't have a whole lot of references to the Mount of Olives, but we do in the life of David when he was fleeing his son Absalom, who was after him, to kill him. He fled from Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives, and there the scripture says he wept. Now we have another picture of the Mount of Olives that comes up in Ezekiel. In fact, in, let me see, 11... Chapter 11, verse 23. You can look that up later. And uh, it's a very sad event because here Ezekiel witnesses the glory of God departing from the temple and then hovering over the Mount of Olives. 
as well as you work your, th- your way, especially through the Passion Week, we notice that it has great significance for the Lord Jesus. It would be from here that the Olivet Discourses would be taught to his disciples as Christ answers some questions about the end times for his men. It would be from here, you remember that uh, Judas would betray the Lord Jesus on the night before his crucifixion. That occurred in the Mount of Olives. And as well, according to Acts chapter 1, this would be the location from which the Lord Jesus would ascend back into glory with his disciples witnessing that. And they would hear, remember the angels that would say to them, let me find it here for you. They said to the Lord Jesus as he was leaving them in uh, Acts chapter 1:10, they looked intently and then there were suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside the disciples, and here's what they said. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. Now there are some, based on their eschatological belief, from Zechariah chapter 14 and 4 who believe, not all of us do, but some do believe, that Jesus will not only return to this place, but this will be the place where he will enact his final judgment against his enemies. So all this to say that the Mount of Olives is a significant location for Christ, deliberately chosen by him on this occasion. But Mark goes on to show us how Christ was in full control, the details of that day, by telling his disciples in verse two and three where to go, to find this unbroken colt or donkey, what they were to say to, the, to anyone who questioned the disciples when they untied the donkey, right down to the answer they were to, be, they were to give to that person who was questioning why they were taking the donkey, right down to the details that they were to tell the owner that they would return the donkey back to him once the Lord Jesus was finished using him. So all this just illustrates how the Lord Jesus was in complete control of every event taking place according to the Father's divine timetable for our redemption in regards to his entry into Jerusalem for the very final time. Right down to the importance of Christ even selecting an unbroken donkey to ride upon. And this was not accidental. This was predicted by Zechariah 500 years before this day had finally arrived. Let me take you there. You got your Bibles? Now, if you can't find Zechariah, find Malachi and then go one back. And uh, there it is. I know, when I get into the, into the minor prophets, I kind of gloss over. I can't remember who's who. And, but Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. Listen, here's the prophecy concerning, I believe, Christ. He said, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous, having salvation, gentle, and what? And riding on a donkey. And so the Lord Jesus is simply fulfilling the will of the Father and the word of God, clearly, 
in his choice of an unbroken donkey on that very day. In fact, even Jacob, back in Genesis chapter 49 and verse 10 and 11, told the nation of Judah that while the scepter will never leave the nation of Judah, the one who possesses that scepter would tether his donkey. That's back in Genesis chapter 49. And so Jesus was simply fulfilling the scriptures. He was simply following in the footsteps of previous Hebrew kings. If you look at the coronation of David and Solomon, you discover in 1 Kings that both of these men rode into the city on a donkey. Because back in those days, it was considered to be a royal animal. And in times of peace, you rode on a donkey, not a war horse. And so Jesus is following in those footsteps. Jesus is frankly indicating very clearly to all all that would see him this day that he was indeed the Messiah of the Old Testament. He was the one that Zechariah had spoken about 500 years before and that Jacob spoke of in Genesis 14. He is the one who would hold the scepter of Judah eternally as the eternal king. He was the one and only son of David who would sit eternally upon David's throne. And so what you watch here is that Jesus doesn't enter Jerusalem with his guns a-blazing. He doesn't do that. Rather, he enters the city peacefully and humbly and gently, indicating to all that would see him what type of king he was and what type of a kingdom he was ultimately going to set up. And you and I both know from Scripture, his intended goal was to bring the peace of God to the nations of the world. His intended goal was to bring peace between God and man and man and man. And this was in fulfillment of what the Scripture says. Again, taking you back to Zechariah chapter 9. In verse 10, Zechariah now says that this one who comes riding into the city gently on a donkey he says, will take away the chariots, and he will take away the war horses, and he will break the battle bows, and he will proclaim peace to the nations, and his rule will extend from sea to sea, and he is the one who will establish a covenant with his blood. All that is there in Zechariah chapter 9. Jesus fulfills that. He comes to bring a message of peace. In fact, that's exactly what the, what the angels announced, didn't they, in, in Luke, when they were shouting about the birth of the Lord Jesus, glory to God on the highest, and peace on earth. That's what the Lord Jesus had come to bring. He was the king of peace. He would bring eternal peace. Even, in fact, in Luke chapter 19, when Luke In his record of of this day that Mark records in Mark 11, in Luke chapter 19, we're told very clearly that when Jesus was on the Mount of Olives, weeping over Jerusalem, he wept with these words, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. That's why he wept. They'd chosen war over peace with God. 
And so the actions of Christ are very deliberate. He comes in obedience to the word of God and the will of God, knowing full well that his actions would cost him everything. And yet he still comes, even though the death threats were elevated against him. It would be even more so after this day. But he came because he knew what his true mission was, and he was in full control of it for our redemption. So we see that Jesus is deliberate in his control, but he's also deliberate in his revelation. Deliberate in what he was displaying to those that would see him on this day in Mark chapter 11. Let me go back there. Mark chapter 11. Now you remember, as I mentioned, that before this this day, Christ had been avoiding the crowds altogether. In fact, we know from the Gospels that Christ often had told those that he had healed to be quiet. Don't tell anybody. Don't spread the word about what I did. Shh, hush up. But no longer. Now he enters that city, frankly, visibly, publicly, as the king eternal. And Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem openly, displaying to those that would see him who he truly was and what he was all about and had always been about, arriving as, Paul would say, in the fullness of time, according to the Father's redemptive plan. And we know that this was the the week of the Passover. And he arrives into the city on the Monday. Now, Monday was the day in which each family would select a lamb to be slain on Friday for Passover. So you see the symbolism here? The true lamb of God on Passover has now arrived in the city who would be slain on that Friday for our redemption. Now, as you well know, that, that every male was required to be there according to Exodus 23, 9, 17. And so the city would have been an absolute buzz of activity and it, it suggested that it would, have, it would have swelled to be three times larger than it normally was. And this is at the height of the Jewish calendar. This is the most celebrated festival ever, the Passover. And here is the Lamb of God present before them. And the final drama has begun. And that drama begins with Jesus riding on a donkey into the city. And sitting on that donkey was humanity and deity wrapped up in a single person. And Jesus entered declaring his kingship. I find it interesting that Matthew records this event, as I've already mentioned to you, in chapter 21. And he said that when Christ entered the city that day, that it literally shook the entire city. Interesting. So everybody was abuzz about chatting about the arrival of Christ. And the question the city was asking was this, who is this? Now this isn't the first time we've seen that question asked of Jesus. Who is this? Well, Jesus will deliberately and publicly answer that question, will he not? With the shouts of the crowd that day who said, Hosanna in the highest, this is who I am. This is who I've always been. This is who I always will be. He declares it publicly to the crowd. I love what um, Sinclair Ferguson says. He's trying to capture this moment from Mark 11. 
he writes, think for a moment. What Mark's record that we just read would convey to those who read it first, the Christians in Rome. Now it's believed that the Christians in Rome would have been underground, under persecution, and they would have received in their hands the gospel of Mark. And so they're reading it to understand the person and work of Christ to encourage their hearts. And so Sinclair continues, no doubt many of them had seen generals enter Rome in triumph to receive the accolades of victory. How stark the contrast between Roman glory and Jesus' humility must have seemed. How mighty and powerful the sword and political power by contrast with King Jesus. Yet we know that his kingdom was established while the glory that was Rome disappeared into oblivion. We know that what Jesus did in Jerusalem established a kingdom which would outlast all kingdoms of this world and break in pieces every man-centered kingdom which sets itself up against it. Jesus had come to take his throne, but it would come to him through a cross. And so Jesus certainly didn't enter Jerusalem that day as some victorious king, like a victorious general, returning after war with all the spoils in tow, but rather he entered that day as a king filled with meekness and gentleness, demonstrating that his kingdom was not of this world and his kingship would not be ruled by physical force and might, but his rule would be and his kingdom would be defined by righteousness and gentleness and peacefulness and justice and salvation for all the nations, just as Zechariah outlined. And so it's very significant that he would ride in on an unbroken donkey. It should have been a real clue to his disciples. And, and you know, in, in a way it was. They did kind of connect some of the dots, but obviously not all the dots. I mean, they, they should have realized as they saw Jesus doing this, as Mark says, he had come to be served. To, pardon me, he'd come, he'd come to serve, not to be served. They should have realized as they saw this, the connector to the Old Testament, that Jesus was indeed a king. He was the Messiah of Zechariah's prophecy. He was David's greater son. He was the one who'd come to occupy the throne of David. But in the minds of the disciples that day, they saw Jesus as coming into the city to finally set up his earthly kingdom. I mean, that's what they thought. Remember, Pastor John talked last Sunday about the disciples having a big argument as to who, was going to, who were going to be the big cheeses in the kingdom. Who's going to be on the right? Who's going to be on the left? Jesus, you know what I mean? Uh, you need to choose us, not them. Uh, give a, they were expecting him to set up this big physical kingdom, take charge, uh, get rid of the Romans, set up Israel again as the nation of all nations. They totally missed what Christ was doing on this day. They didn't understand what king he truly was and how, in fact, his right to rule would be secured. Even the crowds got it wrong. I mean, they were pretty excited, weren't they? 
I mean, this wasn't just a, a quiet entrance. This was loud. The gospel writers picture people before Jesus and after Jesus, and they're shouting in unison. And I don't think it just went on once, but this went on for a while. And together we have a record of what they were shouting. Uh, we, we, we read it together in verse 9. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our David. Hosanna in the highest. They believed Jesus was the fulfillment of these words, and he was. You see, the whole point of this, of this fanfare at this point is that we noticed just before this, that as Jesus entered the city, the townsfolk threw their cloaks and branches, palm branches, onto the ground as Jesus rolled on his donkey into the city. Now, this was customary to do. If a, if a general rode into your city or some king or some dignitary in these days, the townspeople would rush out to show their allegiance and in honor of this individual, they would throw their cloaks and the palm branches on the road because they, they felt that this, this one was too, too great to, to uh, ride just on common dirt. Oh, no. Uh, they were, in essence, rolling out the red carpet for this general. They were declaring their reverence for him. Uh, they were acting in honor of their person. Uh, in essence, by throwing their cloaks, they were saying, you have all that we are. Use all that we have for your glory. That's what they were doing. And then they burst into song. And the song they sang was what we quoted, what you quoted this morning from Psalm 118. It's exactly what, what they were singing from. This is called a Hillel song. <coughs> Pardon me. A pilgrim psalm of thanksgiving and great joy that is identified as a messianic psalm, a psalm that uh, the pilgrims would have sang as they entered Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover because that was a feast of great celebration and remembrance, a psalm that was probably sung in the homes as they celebrated the Passover together, sung in the temple, and so they were simply quoting what the scriptures said. They were acknowledging that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. In fact, it's interesting what they say. The word Hosea, that they shout twice in this text, simply means save us. Save us now, I pray. Be our deliverer, please. I mean, and, and in fact, Jesus was, but they were not looking for a spiritual deliverer or savior. They were looking for a physical, national deliverer who would deliver them from the bondage of the Roman army and would set up again a kingdom in which the nation of Israel would be the nation of all nations in the world. They were looking for Jesus to bring back the glory days that they had lost. But that's not why Christ was there. But he had come to be their deliverer. He had come to save them from their sin, not from the Romans, but from the bondage of their sin, from the rule and curse of sin upon their lives by dying on a cross. Jesus would demonstrate his authority over heaven and earth. 
he would demonstrate his right to rule supremely by giving his life as a ransom for many. But they also declared, blessed is, blessed is. Well, this comes, this takes you right back to the Aaronic blessing in Numbers chapter 6. The desire for the face of God to shine upon the nation. And so now they're, they are singing together, asking God to bless Jesus so that he can bless us. Asking for God's favor to rest on Jesus so God's favor can rest on them. Why is that? Well, they say why. Because he comes in the name of the Lord. He bears literally the name, the character of the living God. He comes acting on behalf of God, bringing in the coming kingdom of our father David. And so they end with, a, with their final shout of praise, Hosanna in the highest. And here they are, they are simply saying, because he bears God's name and acts on behalf of God and is bringing in God's kingdom, then he must be, he is a gift from God, who has come from God, who is worthy of the highest praise of God, because he's God. That's all true of Jesus, isn't it? Absolutely true. This is true of him. This is what he, this is, what he is. This is. This is what he came to fulfill but not in the way they were expecting, and certainly not in the way they were hoping for. But they had identified Christ correctly, had they not. But soon, their anticipation of how he would do all this was soon dashed to pieces, and their false hopes and dreams of that day soon would be shattered. And these shouts on the Monday of Hosanna would be changed to crucify him on the Friday. And a complete about change entirely. And what this crowd and frankly the disciples failed to do was to connect Zechariah 9 with Isaiah 53. They failed to see that this king eternal is the suffering servant as well. And so what a paradox we've got here, don't we? Crowds, anticipation and perception of who they thought Jesus was, and Jesus' true revelation of his deity and humanity, his lowliness, his loftiness in his person and work. There, the crowds' anticipation and the disciples of a physical deliverer, and Jesus coming as a spiritual deliverer. He had not come to purge them from the curse of foreign domination as they thought. But he had come to purge them from their sin and its deadly curse once and for all. And the crowds thought he'd come to bless them only, but actually he had come to bless all the nations of the world through the cross, just as Abraham had spoken of years earlier. And so we have here, really, the paradox we see here in Mark 11 is a paradox of Christ's triumphant entrance into the city because he is both the Lion of Judah and the Lamb of God, is he not? Who would bring conquest of light over darkness, truth over error, love over hate, life over death, forgiveness over condemnation, and salvation over sin. But I want you to know, lastly, Christ's deep resolve. It comes in verse 11. Now, I confess to you, verse 11 seems pretty anticlimactic. 
And you got all this shouting and celebration and palm waving and all the rest of it. And then all of a sudden, kind of nothing. And we read this. And Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now, actually, this text is very significant. And the other gospel writers kind of fill in some of the holes here for us, so we get a much broader understanding of what was going on in this exact moment. But it's important to hear what Mark says. He looked around at everything. At what? At the temple. At the temple. That's what he was observing with the 12 in this moment. And that's quite significant. Because you remember that's where the problem lay. It was with the temple and its leadership. It was full of corruption, filled with corruption. And the nation was in a a state of apostasy because of it and the way in which they used the temple. I mean, it was Jesus knew and was observing how the entire Old Testament system was inadequate to bring salvation to anyone. And so here Jesus had come, had he not to abolish that. He'd come to replace it with himself. And while the glory of God had departed once from the temple, it was back in the person of Jesus Christ, never to depart again. And while the entire Old Testament system was inadequate, the, now the adequacy for the salvation of our souls was present, and it was Jesus standing in the temple because he would get rid of it and abolish it with his own sacrificial death on our behalf. You remember that the temple had been, it was intended originally to be a living witness to Jesus. But it had failed miserably, had it not, in the hands of men. And so Jesus had come finally to point people to the true glory of God found in himself and the true salvation of God that was also found and displayed in his work. I love what one commentator says about the verse in Malachi chapter 3, kind of looking at this day, (coughs) that as Jesus stood there on the temple mount, he really did stand there as the refining fire. He really had come to purify that that which was putrid. He really had. And he will start this work, he will start his work with the temple, and he will finish his work at the cross. And Luke, picturing this moment of Jesus on the Temple Mound, indicates to us in Luke chapter 19, if you want to just turn there for a minute, it indicates that Jesus began to weep as he stood in this place. In fact, it says he wept as he approached Jerusalem. But he's weeping. And I believe Christ was weeping and broken over Jerusalem because of its unrepentant spirit and its inability to understand who he truly was and what he was truly offering them that they had rejected true and eternal peace. This city was absolutely lost. And Jesus was broken because he knew that the day would come when this city would be leveled 
and the temple completely destroyed in A.D. 70, and it broke him up. Jesus had come to bring judgment, but that judgment was filled with righteous sorrow. And I really do believe, as you do, that the heart of the Lord Jesus is still broken, and he sorrows over the condition of the lostness of mankind. Our unrepentant natures, our rebellious hearts, that rejects the Savior and the offer of God to us in Christ, knowing full well that one day those who turn away from Christ will be eternally judged. God does not delight in judgment. God delights in mercy, evidenced by 2 Peter 3, 9 and 10. That's the heart of God. But God must judge because his righteousness demands it. And so Jesus weeps. Jesus weeps over the condition of those found in this city as he weeps over the condition of people found in our world today. Jesus understood clearly Romans 6 and 23. He knew that the wages of sin is is death. But Jesus also understood and I believe rejoiced in this that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He knew he must go into the city in order to die so that he might give us life eternal. So he went. He went unresolved with a deep resolve to fulfill the Father's word and will. Well, a couple of applications. Real quickly, a couple of applications. First of all, this is not going to be a surprise to you, but King Jesus is worthy of all of our worship. You know that. I know that. I mean, I'm talking to the choir for the most part here. But, but, listen, do you worship Jesus for who he truly is? Or do you worship Jesus for what you can just get out of him? Remember, that was a problem with this crowd. If you look at Luke chapter 19, Luke identifies that the reason this crowd sang to Christ that day is because they had seen the mighty acts that he had done. See, they were more interested in what they could get out of him than they were in who he was. What about you this morning? You worship Christ because of who he is? Or do you worship him just so you can get something from his hand? I... uh, I, I had to turn off my TV a few weeks ago as I was watching all the disaster unfold in the Ukraine. I don't know about you, but I was glued to this thing. Uh, I was on every channel I could find, and I, I was discovering that the more I watched the, the war in the Ukraine, the more my heart sank. I, I found myself going to a very dark place very discouraged with all the doom and gloom, and I had to turn it off. What was the solution to the darkness of my soul? I had to begin to meditate on who the Lord Jesus was. I had to stop looking down and start looking up. And I'd suggest you need to do the same thing. We need to start looking up as God's people and rejoice and meditate on the wonder and the glory of Christ as displayed on this day in Mark chapter 11. Take time to think of Jesus. Work your way through the gospel accounts 
and rejoice in all that God did in him and through him for your redemption. In fact, there's a couple of books I just love. You got this last year by Dr. Haken, Christ's Saving Work. Wherever it is, dust it off and uh, get into it. It'll bless your socks. It's a great little book. And then I love this little book by John Piper called The Passion of Jesus Christ, in which he, he gives to us, uh, let's see now, 50 reasons why Christ suffered and died. I'll tell you, it'll be a tonic to your soul. Let's spend time in the presence of Jesus. Remember that little tune, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus? Hey, that's what we gotta do. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full into his wonderful face, and what? The things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Oh, friends, you need to do this daily. You need to do this daily for the sake of your soul. Turn your gaze on him in a world gone wrong. One more thing, and that is this, King Jesus is going to return. You know that from the scriptures. You know that, but his return is going to be radically different from what we see at his birth and what we see in Mark chapter 11. When he returns the second time, friends, he will not be riding on a donkey, but rather he'll be riding on a war horse according to Revelation chapter 19, 11 to 16. That final day will be very different from Mark 11. Take a look at this chart just to illustrate it as I conclude. On Jesus' first coming, he came to die, but on his second coming, he will come to reign. At Jesus' first coming, he came on a colt, but at his second coming, he will come on a warring horse. At his first coming, he came as a servant, but on his second, he'll come as an exalted king. And his first coming, he came in humility, but when he returns at his second coming, he will come to judge. At his first coming, he came as deity veiled, but when he returns, he will come as deity revealed. At his first coming, he came with 12, but when he comes back, he will come with an army of angels. At his first coming, he came in peace, but at his second coming, he will come to make war. At his first coming, he was given a thorn, thorny crown, but at his second coming, he will receive a royal crown. At his first coming, he came as a suffering servant, but on his second return, he'll come as the king of kings. That's the Jesus pictured here in Mark chapter 11. That's the Jesus of the scriptures, of the gospels. Jesus' first coming, very few worshiped him. You knew that. You know that as well as I do. Very few bowed at his feet. Very few acknowledged his sovereignty, but as his, at his second return, all, everyone, you included, will acknowledge his sovereignty, and you will bow at his feet, and you will declare him as the king of all kings. And so let me urge you this morning, if you have not trusted him, to trust him. If you don't, and he returns, and your life is not surrendered to Jesus, it will be too late. It will be too late. And so as God's people, let's declare the glory and the greatness of our King. May it be true that each day of our lives, our song is, is Hosanna in the highest. And that is what you display, and that is what you sing from the depths of your heart to a world in desperate need of Jesus.
Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the picture of our King, the Lord Jesus. Thank you, the Lord, that in him we see both humanity and deity. Thank you that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And so, Lord, help us, I pray, that each and every day that you grant us on this planet, that we will display and we will shout Hosanna in the highest. In Christ's name, amen. Look, he's coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.